News. 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 New York City. The FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC, bringing you the smoothest political news of it all. I'm Professor Christina Greer. And I'm Harry Siegel. Joining us is Felipe De La Hose. Of borderlines.substack.com. Of borderlines.substack.com. Let's get right to it. Felipe, thank you for uh, joining us again. Thank you, Harry. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. So before we jump in, tell us, uh, tell us real quickly about Borderlines and uh, what you're doing now. So Borderlines is a, is a newsletter once weekly that I launched with my colleague Gabby Del Valle, who's a journalist at Vice specializing in immigration. We're both immigration beat reporters. And the idea kind of sprung out of the fact that we often were asked by our colleagues and our friends, you know, what actually happened with this particular policy that we all read about this past week. You know, there were a thousand headlines, a million takes. We don't actually know what happened. Uh, and so the the purpose of the newsletter is, you know, every week, Friday mornings it goes out, we take at least we take one topic that we think was kind of the biggest news uh, about immigration policy that week. And every week there are several these days. Uh, so we take one and we basically try to break it down as much as possible uh, in the sense of how we got here. You know, what was the kind of precedent? Did this policy exist in another version before? Is this completely new? What was the groundwork? What's the kind of legal basis for it? And then, you know, what actually is happening? Who is it affecting? How is it affecting them? Is it an effect? Is it a proposal? That sort of thing. And then we do a little bit of speculation uh, about how we think this could play out in the future, what the open questions are. And then we also have a few blurbs on other things that we think are important. And then another section where we just kind of lay out things that you should be on the lookout for in the near future. So, for example, uh, you know, we, we're talking about this week probably public charge because, it, you know, as things stand, it's slated to go into effect next week. Uh, and so we, we kind of talk about what to, what to think and what to expect. Let's jump right in there. So please explain what is happening with this public charge rule, what the rule is, uh, what the state of its implementation is, and what it is likely to mean if it goes into a full effect. And also, what it means for New Yorkers specifically, if that's the case. Sure. So, um, and I, and I want to be, uh, I'm going to draw a distinction here because the, the administration also recently announced a, a health insurance restriction uh, through a presidential proclamation. And I, I just want people to understand that that's different than public charge. It's, it's kind of easy to draw a connection, but it's completely separate kind of policy rollout. But as far as but the implications may, may end up being similar, yes, right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's, so they don't have to pass a law or anything here, but there's some standard by which if they think you can't be affording your own health insurance and you're mm -hmm. trying to apply for legal immigration. Yes. So this, the, the, the proclamation on health insurance would only apply to so-called immigrant type visas. So those are the ones that are intended for permanent resettlement. So it wouldn't affect, for example, students or visitors or anybody of that sort. Um, but yeah, so so kind of to your point, all of this relies on essentially the same authorities. And I think what a lot of folks don't understand is that immigration policy in particular is an area of law and policy where the executive has extremely broad discretion, probably more so than almost any other area of kind of federal policymaking. Uh, and that's by design. The Congress 
passed, you know, a number of laws. The, the Immigration Nationality Act was kind of the, the largest, most recent. But, you know, in addition to that, um, I mean, they, they, they passed laws that laid out certain kinds of programs and policies, but really gave the executive a lot of discretion in how to implement those laws. So, I think we talked about this the last time you yeah. were on and with, with our friends at uh, Documented right. at that point. But like the judges, for instance, are, are not part of the judicial branch. Right? That's correct. Yeah, they're, they're not – you know, Article One judges. They're not like a federal judiciary. They're not part of the judicial process as such. They're actually within the Department of Justice. Yeah. But, you know, so, so anyway, I, would, I do want to answer your question. So with, with regards to the public charge rule, there's been a lot of confusion. And I think that was by design because successive drafts of that were leaked basically. And it wasn't, you know, the, the finalized rule was actually slightly different than the, than the, the rules that had been kind of uh, published prior. So as it stands right now on October 15th, the rule will go into effect unless it's enjoined by a federal judge, which might happen because there have been several national injunctions by district court judges with regards to, um, you know, policy developments. But as of now, you know, it's later to go into effect. The idea being that the country does not want to you know, be saddled with um, people that are going to become dependent on the government. And this actually has existed for a long time. You know, the, there is already a public charge determination that gets made. It's just that up until now, it's been much narrower. So it would be people that, for example, relied primarily on the government for their income or had very long-term, you know, chronic illnesses that would necessitate them to be constantly receiving these benefits. Now it's been expanded to, to – um, well, not yet, but I mean, it, it will be expanded to include basically anyone who has used ever any a slate of um, you know different public benefits, including SNAP food assistance, for example, you know, Section Eight housing vouchers, some other things. Um, and the, the kind of odd quirk about it too is that it allows the government to make a determination about whether you ever will use public benefits, even if you haven't. So you know, if if USCIS basically d- you know, determine what's, what's, what's that acronym you just used? Oh, sorry, USCIS, which is the United States Citizenship and Immigration Services, which is kind of the agency that does all of the um, evaluation of applications mm-hmm. and actually grants and immigration benefits. Um, so, you know, they can just decide that, you know, based on your credit score and income, for example, uh, and your education and, uh, and a variety of other factors that they're allowed to consider, that, you know, at some point in the future, you may end up using public benefits, and therefore you can be denied. Uh, and there's there's no way to appeal that decision. So once the decision is made, it's basically made. Uh, and that one actually, unlike the health insurance thing, applies to tech, well, as as written now, basically everyone. So that you know, except for humanitarian um, immigrants, so people who are getting asylum or refugee status, special immigrant juveniles, victims of trafficking, et cetera, et cetera. But anyone who is, for example, even like a student or, you know, I mean, under the way it's written, even perhaps somebody who's coming on a tourism visa could be denied on, on public charge grounds, as well as people that are intending to become permanent residents, permanent resident, people that are already permanent residents, by and large are not affected except in if they've been permanent residents I think for five years or less and people that are applying for citizenship are not affected at all. So that's that's one other carve out. 
I think that that's just such a fascinating caveat, considering during the government shutdown, we saw just how many Americans who have, quote unquote, good jobs and homes, they were literally one paycheck away from needing and receiving those benefits, too. So how do you even right. make that projection? It seems absurd. Right. I mean, I think, like, you know, it's it's pretty clear that this is all part of a of overarching framework that's mm-hmm. being drawn up by, you know, primarily Stephen Miller, the the president's, uh, you right. know, one of his senior advisors, uh, in particular on immigration matters. And it's it's just a very restrictionist kind of of approach. And, and these are all tools that are being used to implement that approach. I mean, the you know, the health insurance policy, too. A lot of people have already pointed out that, you know, you know a whole lot of Americans, right. <laughs> Don't have it you know, can't afford right. health insurance. And Sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. And so what does this then mean for New Yorkers? Because last time you were here, you all talked to us about what was going on outside of courthouses and mm-hmm. even though we're a sanctuary city. So how how does all of this affect New Yorkers in particular? Sure. Yes. Since we're such a hub for immigrants, immigration, uh, and all different types of immigrants coming through. Sure. So, I mean, in kind of an odd way, I mean, for people that are – undocumented and and don't really intend to, you know, regularize their status or whatever. I mean, actually, at this point, they might be the least affected because a lot of the times they're not actually eligible to receive any of these benefits. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so actually a lot of the people that are that are, are, would be most affected by public charge in particular um, would be people that are kind of, you know, have some kind of status or even are undocumented but are, you know, have a path towards regularizing their status and might see that kind of derailed by this this new regulation. Um, so I've asked the New York City government on a couple occasions. I, I asked the speaker, Corey Johnson of the, the New York City Council, you know, in particular, a lot of their efforts so far have been geared towards disseminating information. Because one of the big fears here is that a lot of people that actually wouldn't be subject to to the public charge rule mm-hmm. would still drop their benefits. And we've the data has borne this out. We have seen people dropping out of the WIC program, for example, mm-hmm. women, infants, and children, which, you know, isn't included. And so the city itself is trying very hard to make sure that anyone, before they make any kind of a decision, speaks with an attorney, which they're providing through this hotline and all this stuff. Now, this is all about getting people who are not affected not to disenroll. That said, there are going to be a lot of people that are going to be affected. And in that case, I mean, it's kind of hard to, you know, there's not really a, a good solution here. You know, the, the New York City government and the New York State government simply do not have the infrastructure in place nor the funding to replace Medicaid or like the full slate of government housing assistant programs or anything. So some people will just have to stop using uh, these benefits probably. And, you know, there's not really much right now that seems like it could be done about it. Two questions for you here. First, when you say some people have to stop using these benefits, is there a sense at this point about how many people the shift in the public charge rule is going to impact and which people in particular out of out of the pool of, uh, of migrants who are coming here? Because I assume it's not going to be necessarily evenly distributed. Mm-hmm. I mean, low-income people, obviously, in particular, are, are going to be affected. I mean, people that have a, you know, a high level of income, generally speaking, won't, won't be affected because they can easily prove that, you know, they're they have some path towards you know, self-sufficiency under this particular definition. Who do you think Stephen Miller is looking to uh, to pinch or cramp from coming here in the course of doing this? Oh, I mean, 
I think his ultimate objective is to basically restrict almost everyone. But, you know, since he can't just shut down immigration, there are categories that are more vulnerable to this. And because something like the public charge, you know, designation is already codified in law, right? They don't have to they don't have to change the law. They only have to change their interpretation of it. Those are the things that are especially attractive to them because they don't have to, you know, nothing, none of this has to go through this bruising fight in mm-hmm. Congress. They can just enact it. And, you know, there will be lawsuits and whatever. But even the lawsuits that exist, for example, on public charge, even on the asylum ban, on several other things, a lot of them, they take the form of saying that, you know, these changes that the administration is trying to implement, it's not necessarily that they're not allowed to implement them by law. That It's just it's that the way that they tried to go about it was unlawful because it was capricious and it was targeting a particular population. So to your point, you know, I think it would be targeting, obviously, probably like low-income immigrants from Latin America, you know, would be in particular affected in Africa as well and, you know, elsewhere where people that have family members and tend to immigrate through family-based immigration, for example, very much affected. So so this hits at the uh, quote-unquote chain migration. Right, right, which has been an obsession. The Melania style. And the public charge rule goes back, I think, to the 19th century, right? Yeah, yeah, it does. Like, as a, I think there was a, a public charge. Name. The, the modern kind of statute, I think, goes back to the 1965 with the INA. Um, but there has been some version of public charge for a long time, yeah. So, Philippe, you mentioned something really briefly, um, and I saw it uh, on the website, which is borderlines.substack.com. That's correct. Um, that is borderlines.substack.com. Um, so when... Right now, it seems as though when when folks talk about immigration, the face of immigration seems to be immigrants coming from uh, the southern border, Mexico, mm-hmm. Honduras, right. Salvador, El Salvador, Guatemala. But you briefly mentioned immigrants coming from Africa, and there's also been a large conversation about so many immigrants from, say, China on various ways. Are these laws being played out in the same way for all immigrants, or is it somewhat country-specific. So are we finding that, um, let's just say, immigrants from the southern border are, are having a, a different sort of situation than, say, immigrants coming from the continent of Africa or parts of Asia? Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, it's sort of interesting that you bring that up. One of the things that I think the administration is kind of relying on is that kind of immigration as a concept gets melded into one mm-hmm. kind of monolithic thing, right? And so when they rail against immigration, at this point, I mean, it's basically any kind, whether it's, you know, quote-unquote illegal immigration or legal immigration. So with the, with their border, for example, they are constantly talking about, like, the illegal immigration at the southern border. So a, a couple of points on that. You know, the uh, seeking asylum at the southern border, as I and others have said a thousand times, is completely lawful to do, right? Mm-hmm. It, you know, and so... There's a conflation there that furthers their goals where, you know, this kind of legal form of immigration is being painted as unlawful and and in some ways is actually being made to be so because, for example, with the metering policy wherein people aren't even allowed to tender asylum applications, you know, and have to wait for months in very dangerous conditions. And now with the so-called migration protection protocols, which force people who have claimed asylum to return to very dangerous situations in Mexico while they await their asylum hearings that could be months in the future – and now that they're going to implement this total asylum ban for anyone who, you know, crossed through another territory on their way to the southern border, basically it's a total asylum ban that we're going to see very shortly. And so it's basically turning what would have been legal immigration into 
unlawful immigration by forcing people to to cross illegally where there would have been a path otherwise to cross right. legally. So the, the other thing too is like you know a lot of this stuff with the public charge and whatnot. I mean that really is targeting by and large legal immigration. It's all said in the same kind of breath as like we're being invaded at the southern border or whatever. But it, you know it, it has nothing to do with the southern border really. Like this you know public charge stuff. It just kind of all conflated. And you know it, so you mentioned kind of uh, whether there's kind of country. You know, I would say, I would say not in the way that it's implemented. I mean, the, it's all kind of intended to prevent um, migrants from from arriving and resettling in the United States. You know, no matter where they're from. And actually, you know, one of the kind of lesser discussed phenomena uh, recently is that of the folks actually arriving at the southern border. It's still, by and large, people from Central America and whatnot. But there is a there is a growing contingent of people that are called kind of transcontinental asylum right. seekers, right. which are people that are actually arriving from uh, Southeast Asia and mm-hmm. and various countries in you know Sub-Saharan Africa and and elsewhere, you know that are that are kind of attempting to go the same route. Even Cuba now, which kind of has lost some of its special designation, right. there are a lot of migrants arriving at the southern border from Cuba, and they're all kind of being treated in the same way. Um, you know, with some specific carve-outs, like, for example, Mexicans cannot be subject to the migrant protection protocols because they would be returned to a country that they're seeking asylum exactly. from. But apart from the for, apart from those kind of carve-outs, you know, it's really a, kind of a broad-based effort to keep out, I would say, basically anyone who's kind of a lower-income right. immigrant. How, how much is this tracking under Trump in America what Europe dealt with a little bit earlier – as a bunch of uh, disruptions in the world led to, I think, the the greatest set of migrations oh. since World War II yeah. and attempts at openness, Germany in particular, but a whole bunch of countries that then sort of got pushed back and eventually to trying to cut deals with countries in Northern Africa, with Turkey, to sort of create a buffer outside of the EU so that people could be processed and pushed back and that that sort of business. It seems to me like there's some some interesting parallels there that, that are also useful because it's a uh, somewhat different group of migrants than we're we're talking about here, but mm-hmm. um, but but similar dynamics playing out with uh, with with democracies first opening up and then closing off and then trying to find ways to keep these issues really outside of their borders. Yeah. No. I mean, I think in it's sort of a global phenomenon of of kind of a backlash domestically in a lot of places to kind of the resettlement of uh, of refugees and, and immigrants. I mean, even places where very clearly the, the economy is being boosted by the the arrival of, of refugees and whatnot. I mean, here in New York, even like Buffalo, right, was basically revitalized by the arrival of a lot of refugees and stuff. But, it, but it, it, it's sort of a more, I think, an emotional reaction rather than a kind of a practical reaction. And, it, and so, yeah, I mean, I think Europe, Europe is a little bit, Different in the sense that you know it's like all these different countries, but that have these shared borders and stuff. And so a, a lot of countries were concerned that people were entering through Italy or Spain or whatever, and then being allowed to kind of disperse throughout the the continent. And it's supposed uh, to be the first place you land on the continent. That's where you're supposed to start the process. Start the yeah, process. You can still, I think, express an intention to go elsewhere, but you have to kind of file some paperwork where the point of first entry. But that seemed more nominal at first and then was being more closely enforced. And then that seemed to up the political pressure in countries with with, with borders at the edge of Europe, as mm-hmm. it were. So so in, in, in Spain and in Italy. Right. 
Um, and then that in turn seemed to have those countries look for buffer countries totally outside of the borders of Europe where migrants could be processed and held and often held in really lousy conditions before they had any chance to apply and to have facts or feet on the ground, as right. it were. And yeah. I think something similar has been happening with, with some of the pressure Trump has been putting on Mexico. As you mentioned, this doesn't apply to, to, to Mexicans who are coming up here, but to Central Americans who are going through Mexico to, to try to deter them from, from making this effort at all. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the, there's sort of a double speak that goes on where, you know, the migrant protection protocols, you know, it's mm-hmm. kind of a – doesn't really make sense. I mean, the, you know, the, the, the idea being – I think that it's basically trying to ban asylum as a concept through means that aren't saying that as such. And I think that's one of, one of the key differences here. I think in general Europe has been attempting to limit the number of people that can seek asylum in those countries – but, you know, if somebody makes it in and kind of tenders an application or wants to, they're, they're still going to be able to do so and their claim is going to be adjudicated. The U.S. is trying to make it so that, you know, even if you reach U.S. territory, you know, and you step foot on, on U.S. soil and you tender an asylum claim, I mean, it, it's not certain that you're going to be able to even stay in the country while your claim is being adjudicated. And soon enough, once the kind of total asylum ban goes into place – I mean, by and large, it's just not going to be possible to claim asylum in the United States at all because you're going to have to have done so first in, you know, Mexico or once these these other uh, agreements, these bilateral agreements with Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala go into effect. That those don't even have a territorial crossing stipulation as they're written right now. So it means that you can just have arrived in Mexico and tried to like claim asylum at the U.S. border and pursuant to these agreements. Hypothetically, once they go into effect, you could just be sent to Guatemala, even though you've never set foot there, to claim asylum there, and 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 then you know, probably not have it adjudicated because they have like three asylum officers, you know. And so basically, the U.S. is in these different ways trying to make it so that claiming asylum is is even if you make it to the U.S. is virtually impossible. Right. I've got I've got a question for you that's somewhat tangential. Mm-hmm. In uh, in one of your pieces on borderlines.substack.com, um, you all mention DNA testing. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like that's a conversation that hasn't gotten as much attention in the mainstream media. Can you walk us through what that what that is and what that means for the future of, quote-unquote, tracking immigrants and children especially? Sure. So, you know, I think as I, as I wrote there... Where? It, on borderlines.substack.com? Exactly, right there. That's, that's where I wrote it. Thank you. Um, but, you know, the, this is kind of another one of those things where people are like, how is this legal? It, but, it, but it turns out that it's actually explicitly legal because it's codified in law that, you know, the reason that this wasn't being done before is because there had been an exception to, you know, immigrants in federal custody. So there's a law that states that a DNA profile of everyone that is held in federal government custody will be retained and put into this database, right? And so people in immigration custody with CBP and ICE actually had been exempted from this by Janet Napolitano, the former Homeland Security Secretary. Um, well, actually, they had been exempted before. The, the exemption was expanded a little bit by Napolitano. But, you know, the point was they actually had a specific carve-out where they weren't subject to this if they were – I believe they were in a in a deportation proceeding, or they were they had no 
criminal record. So if they had no, you know, federal criminal record or they weren't kind of currently in, you know, if they weren't currently in, in removal proceedings, they, their DNA profile wouldn't be taken. So what the, the, the administration is trying to do now is actually just get rid of that exemption and have the law go into kind of its full effect, so to speak. Uh, and basically anytime someone is, is arrested by ICE or CBP, that's um, Customs and Border Patrol. Yeah, Customs and Border Patrol. They would have a, a DNA profile of themselves taken and inserted into this kind of federal criminal database that could then, you know, hypothetically try to find matches with open criminal investigations and but, stuff but like that. But there's really nothing to worry about that as long as you're not related to an immigrant or an immigrant or have any relation to an immigrant. I'm pretty sure. Um, well, I mean, I, you know. I, I'm, I'm, I'm being, I'm being, being a little tongue-in-cheek, <laughs> but, uh, you know, one of the awesome, crazy, scary stories of the last few years are amateur genealogists solving crimes because, right. you know, Chrissy is like, um, you know, working out her family history and then, you know, congratulations, uh, your third cousin is going to prison. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, and I mean, that's sort of thing. I mean, in expansion. general, kind of like there's a lot of privacy concerns about the government just retaining people's – Yeah. DNA forever, I mean, hypothetically. And are they taking this via swab or is this a a blood test? Is this also fingerprinting? Like how how are they? Well, the fingerprints are already taken. Right. Those get taken. Uh, The DNA test, you know, I'm actually not entirely sure how the the actual process goes. I think it might just be like a cheek swab. Um, And which is already basically, it was already done to anyone in kind of federal criminal detention. Right. um, But, you know, hadn't been done to people in federal immigration detention. But, you know, they might change that. There might be another lawsuit. There probably will be. I mean, as far as when they try to implement that, because everything—that's just how it works these right. days. The government rolls out something, it gets sued. There might be an injunction. There might not be. Right. It just goes up the chain of the court of appeals. I mean, the only—and and please correct me if I'm wrong—but when I read this, I mean, obviously this is frightening and disgusting. But the only sort of glimmer of hope that I possibly saw is because so many families are being separated. I was wondering if DNA. Testing could one day reunite families since there's so many children who are below the age of even knowing their proper names and their parents' names. They only know mama and papa. So in a different world, many years later, could this be used in a positive light? I don't know. To like sort of right the wrongs of this sort of current atrocity. Yeah, I mean, the actually the, the, the administration had specifically begun collecting DNA samples from people that were arriving uh, at the border and claiming to be be family members, to you know, to a family unit as they call it. Uh, so it's, it's they use these kind of there are these fast DNA tests that are uh-huh. like more expensive but quicker than like a kind of one you have to send to the lab. And they were doing that um, to essentially ensure that people who were claiming to be related actually were related. Oh. So they were already doing that for families. Um, Actually, when they started doing that, they had specifically assured journalists and you know civil libertarians that they that this was not going to become a big database of everyone's DNA, which right, which is exactly what they're doing. Yeah. Speaking of which, in New York, uh, a uh, sanctuary city, um, so called, there are eighty three thousand genetic profiles in the city's database that the NYPD has been collecting. Um, a lot of those are uh, pre-arrests or from investigations. Um, 31,000 come from people, including children, who uh, were suspected but not uh, convicted of a crime. And that's up about 30% in two years. And presumably the, those numbers 
will keep rising. So, so it, it, it's maybe outside the scope of this conversation to some extent, but it, it's just remarkable as authorities are able to collect more information. Yeah, how much of it they're collecting and how much of it again, as, as long as you're not related in any way, your 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 third cousin twice removed has never been arrested. There's there's really nothing to worry about. Oh, but on, now, on the other hand, if they have right now, where's the mayor on this? Like, how is is he? You know, as New York is a sanctuary city, we know that the mayor talks about us being a sanctuary city. But is he leading any conversation or sort of local policy to try and counteract what's going on on the federal level? Yeah, I mean, and I can think, he? Does he even have the power to do so? Well, I think you know, and I think this is a good opportunity to kind of talk about what sanctuary means mm-hmm. uh, because I think that a lot of people misunderstand the term sanctuary city or sanctuary state, both kind of from from one end of the spectrum to the other end of the spectrum. So, you know, people that are very, you know, right-wing, you know, interpreted as, oh, these cities or, you know, counties or whatever are just releasing, you know, convicted criminals willy-nilly because they don't want them to get in the hands of ICE. All it is is, is a basically an agreement not to actively cooperate with immigration enforcement officials or actively question um people about, you know, things that could be immigration sensitive, but it's not, you know, no one's going to be like released early because they're an immigrant. You know, there's there's kind of all these misconceptions and and sort of on the left as well, people think of Century City, oh, that must mean that, you know, our authorities will never collect any of this information or share it with the federal government. And that's absolutely not true either. I mean, there's actually a very interesting piece in the Times recently. That article by Mackenzie Funk is called How ICE Picks Its Targets in the Surveillance Age. Deck after two officers came to a Pacific Northwest community, longtime residents began to disappear, a testament to the agency's quiet embrace of big data. It's really worth a read if you haven't already. About how in the modern era, agencies of every level of government and of every type are constantly collecting just reams of information about everyone all the time. And a lot of this stuff isn't designed to be used in any kind of immigration or even criminal enforcement purpose, but it just ends up being like hoovered into these huge databases that allow, you know, immigration enforcement officers or, you know, federal law enforcement of other types to basically locate almost anyone and find out almost anything about them because, you know, it's like DMVs, it's, you know, that like are collecting, you know, your picture and your address and stuff. Anyway, I feel like I'm not, I'm kind of launching into this diatribe. To answer your question, (laughs) um, New York City is a sanctuary city right now in the sense that, you know, police officers are prohibited from questioning anyone about their immigration status or sharing any such information. All of the DA's offices have immigration review units that make sure that in charging decisions, people aren't being led to plea to things that will have immigration consequences if that's not necessary. We have the NIFA public defender program, which provides an attorney for um, – anyone who's facing removal proceedings and is detained in in New York, which, you know, a lot of people also don't realize that if you're facing removal proceedings, you're not entitled to a lawyer. But the city kind of on a municipal level does it. There are a number of situations, very, very limited in scope, in which the city will cooperate with uh, immigration enforcement authorities. That is, if someone has been convicted of a list of, I think, felonies and misdemeanors, I think it's 270, uh, and there's a judicial warrant that's been that ICE has in hand. So oftentimes ICE doesn't operate with actual warrants. They have these things called administrative warrants that 
are signed by like an ICE supervisor, but not a judge. Uh, and some, you know, counties and cities kind of choose to honor these as like real warrants, but they don't, they're not legally binding in the same way. There's uh, a lot of that with ICE, right? You have raids where they just have jackets with police, the words right. police in the back, and that's it. Yeah. Administrative warrants, administrative judges. Yeah, I mean the whole the whole system top to bottom is pretty heavily executive branch like oriented. But I don't even I think that's happened like twice in the last like two years or something that like they've actually cooperated with it, you know, with ICE to to have someone who they have a judicial warrant for and who's been convicted of one of these crimes. Yeah, and as you know, I I don't I don't think the city has done like that much Further, I mean, this is all these are kind of old programs. There's actually the whole controversy right now over the uh, municipal ID program, mm-hmm. the IDNYC program, because they they wanted to include this uh, banking chip on it so that that it could be used as a like a, a debit account, uh, and that you know has has spurred a lot of backlash because any additional data point that's going to be right. stored anywhere, and this would also require third party vendors who would actually manufacture and provide the technology for these chips. And that was the every, concern with yeah. this from Jump, right, with the municipal IDs was what if we end up with, say, a President Trump and we have this identification that's meant to help people who otherwise can't have right. driver's licenses. Right. And we have a mayor who, hello, uh, Brian Lair show and uh, your excellent interviews, uh, doesn't seem to always know how this works. So, for instance, you can't use these in bars because the, the drinking age is a state law. This is a well-known problem right. with the municipal right. IDs that, that de Blasio discovered when a, a caller asked about it and right. uh, this last week, I think. And he said, oh, that, that's new information yeah. to me. I mean, I, I doubt that this this Well, the people in Iowa it. seem to like it. <laughs> that's what's that's going to be a, a joke is not going to be unintelligible in <laughs> right. like a few years. Right. Um, yeah. So I don't think the banking chip thing will happen. I mean, apart from that, the city is investing more money into knife up. So is the state actually, and they have now this like rapid response program that's like if people are in imminent danger of deportation or have very complex cases, there's these programs now to help. So I think, I mean, by and large, New York State and New York City are kind of collectively about as sanctuary as you can get. I mean, maybe excluding some places in California. Okay. Um, but it's been – they've been pretty forward. The, only, the one thing that was kind of like the big glaring, you know, uh, thing that they weren't doing was trying to prevent courthouse arrests mm-hmm. or arrests around courthouses. But now actually uh, Brooklyn District Attorney Eric Gonzalez and um, Tish, James. Sta- Tish James, the attorney general of, of New York, have filed lawsuits to try to stop that practice, um, you know, claiming that it violates state control and like local jurisdiction and that it – you know, violates the Administrative Procedure Act. So they're they're actually. I mean, that wasn't you know like lawmakers per se, but it was actually like prosecutors um, attempting to kind of force this change through a lawsuit. So Felipe, what else should we be uh, expecting to read about in the next few weeks when we go to borderlines.substack.com? I mean, I think a lot of the stuff that's coming down the pike. I think there these kind of things go in boom bust cycles or or just it's sort of cyclical like the administration rolls out a ton of stuff that's extremely like legally controversial they get sued and then it's this whole you know drawn out process of it being litigated at the district and then the the uh, uh, circuit level and then eventually going to the Supreme Court if 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 it makes it that far so I think you know in the last kind of 2 3 weeks we've had several 
new things that have been announced or that are going to be implemented. So the public charge is going to be implemented. The health insurance thing was just announced by presidential proclamation. Um, and, you know, the the asylum bar is, is kind of like now been allowed to go forward as it's being considered by the Ninth Circuit. And there's these bilateral agreements with Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador that we haven't really seen yet. So all of these things are unprecedented changes, particularly by executive action. Like no, no change like this has ever been made. I mean, arguably, I guess you could say that the DACA thing was a huge, but this would affect way more people collectively than, than DACA, like all of these kind of policies put together just in terms of headcount. And so I think we've, we saw all this kind of go out. And now we're going to see the cycle of it all getting litigated in court. And, you know, probably I can already imagine some of the arguments that are going to be used. You know, a lot of this ends up being legislation by courts now because Congress won't act. Uh, and so, you know, it just it has everything goes to everything goes to court. And is this uncertainty having a measurable deterrent effect on uh, on migration? Oh, I mean, I you know, I think the, the U.S. actually we actually still have very high numbers of resident resettlement and naturalizations. But I think it, that it's sort of like a hangover. I mean, you haven't really seen yet the the kind of dips that we're, I think we would expect to see with people. I mean, we have actually in some programs. So, for example, the student um, mm-hmm. student programs where, you know, F1 and J1 visas of people kind of coming here to study, those have plummeted the rates because, you know, who wants to – wants to deal with that people going to canada or you know the uk or something if they want to have like an english-speaking education that's been a big hit on public schools interestingly um because they depended on those students who pay Mm -hmm. much higher tuition than in-state students but Um, it's also affecting private universities because so many the vast majority of universities are cash poor and they are tuition reliant and they you know international students pay full freight usually plus a little sprinkle more. So if you see a dip, even if it is a 5% dip, not even a double-digit dip, mm-hmm. we can be talking you know, millions of dollars, actually, in lost right. revenue. And it's also kind of a, the employment visa categories. Um, mm-hmm. Those are, we're seeing dips, absolutely, because, I mean, it's harder to do, so that dissuades people from doing it. And then once you actually embark on the process, it's much harder to get a positive outcome. So, you know, all the... H1 and O and sort of a lot of these these uh, categories that sort of American businesses rely on, you know, I mean, the, the, that's why there's actually now coalitions of business leaders that are specifically dedicated to pushing back on this because it's it's going to be very bad for, I mean, you know, that's the one thing I feel that actually might <laughs> sway Trump somewhat that all his, you know, big business friends are starting to get pretty worried about um, – the impact that, you know, all this is going to have long-term on kind of commercial activity and, you know, the ability for U.S. companies to attract talent and all that stuff. You know, they maybe they don't care very much about the kind of asylum seekers, refugees, and low-income immigrants, but they might care a little bit if the, you know, the bottom line of a lot of these. I think what blew that up was Mark uh, Zuck. What's his face? Zuckerberg? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that's who I mean. Oh, Mark. Okay, got it. Who who was very big on this and there, there was this taint of hypocrisy around it because tech companies in particular were using these programs like H-1B that are meant for jobs that you can't find people here to do and bringing in people who would do them cheaper. This happened a lot in journalism too and I won't name names there where I know people who were working on these visas and were 
to stay here were very, very reliant on their employers who mm-hmm. understood that they mm-hmm. didn't necessarily have to give these people raises they deserved um, or treat them particularly well and, and that the, they had tremendous leverage over their, their employees. Yeah. yeah, that happens a lot. You know, I mean, like uh, here in New York, the H-2A agricultural visa, I did a whole story about that back when I was a documenter, but it was, it's it's sort of a mess because, like, they don't work very well, but they also don't provide by statute a whole lot of protections for the employee. But, you know, like, I mean, all of this stuff would actually have to be changed by legislation. And, like, right. I, you know, I'm not I'm not optimistic yeah. about that. Felipe, thank you so much for thank coming in. Thank you so much for coming in. This has been truly informative. So what— Borderlines.substack.com. It's borderlines.substack. Now, what should we be keeping our eye on in the upcoming weeks um, as far as immigration policy or anything that's going to come out of Washington, D.C. or New York City that we should keep our ears to the ground? Well, uh, in New York, the state recently passed driver's licenses for people regardless of immigration status. Two county executives have sued in federal court to try to have it declared unconstitutional. And um, a couple of Congress members actually intervened with the Justice Department to have the Attorney General of the United States make a determination that it was unconstitutional and intervene in the lawsuits. So that's going to be playing out pretty soon. It'll have, I think, actually national implications because several other states are, already have uh, these driver's licenses. And uh, if a federal court here were to actually rule that the program was unconstitutional, I think that could open up some other states to try to use that precedent or, you know, mm-hmm. parties in those states to try to use that precedent to knock those statutes down or even the federal government. Um, so that's one thing. DACA arguments are going to be heard before the Supreme Court in November, mm-hmm. you know, which <laughs> at this point, like all these DACA kids have been, have been waiting how long, you know, I mean, like the, the program was instituted in 2012 right. and it hasn't been, it's just been this temporary thing since and they're trying to end it, which is, which is the lawsuit that's now pending. So I think that the, that that's going to be something to keep an eye on, uh, and then I think it, you know it'll be really interesting to see the actual de- details of both this presidential proclamation because right now it's just sort of very sketchy. It you know it's just it's like three pages, uh, and so it's up to the, I think the Secretary of State to actually develop a process to um, evaluate whether people you know would be excluded on that basis. The Migration Policy Institute, which is sort of a bipartisan immigration analysis, policy analysis um, think tank, they had an analysis, I think, a couple days ago where they estimated that at least based on the recent immigrant data uh-huh. that they had, you know, something like 60, 65% of people who have, like, recently immigrated to the U.S. on immigrant visas would not have, would have been excluded if this health insurance thing had gone into effect. Because... The way that it's written in the proclamation, it, it bars anyone from obtaining an immigrant visa if they either don't have health insurance within 30 days of their arrival in the United States, which is pretty difficult. I mean, unless, like if, even if you're starting a job, sometimes you right. know, the health, health insurance, insurance doesn't, doesn't kick, kick in immediately. In. So, you know, or even if they actually even if they have health insurance, it can't be Medicaid and it can't be subsidized. So even if you have health insurance on a state exchange, but you're receiving subsidies for it, that doesn't count. And so it's actually, it's a pretty overarching, you know, it's it's a very expansive policy in the kind of very still rough draft way that it's written. Mm-hmm. So I think we'll really have to keep an eye on how that plays out because 
this has the potential to really be a very severe obstacle for almost anyone who wants to kind of immigrate legally to the United States. So I think that's one thing we should all be kind of checking in on, plus the bilateral agreements that you know are still also very rough draft, whatever happens with those, the ones with Guatemala, Honduras, mm-hmm. and El Salvador. <sighs> well, you are a national treasure, and we appreciate you. <laughs> um, thank you so much for coming in, and uh, hopefully our listeners will go to borderlines.substack.com to read more um, that you and your colleague Gabby Del Valle uh, are delving into. Great. Thanks so much, Chrissy and Harry. It's uh, always a pleasure to be here. F-A-Q. FAQ NYC is supported by a grant from Civil, a blockchain company reinventing the economics of journalism, and from listeners like you. We were headquartered and recorded this week at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research. A special thank you goes out to Felipe De La Hose of borderlines.substack.com. Our executive producer is Alex Brooklyn. And another thank you to Adam Kamara, who recorded and mixed today's episode. I'm Harry Siegel. Me too. Uh, hold on, I'm just going to crunch this and then we can start. Del Valle.